Let's remain standing for prayer. Father, that is our prayer, that you would speak to us and that you would build us up in the word so that your church would be strengthened and built up. Father, we come before you as weak vessels and we need your strength. We need discernment and wisdom on how to live in this world. And we want to live biblically and we want to walk humbly before you and we want to obey your word. And we want to know the resurrection power of Christ in our lives. So as we process and take in the teachings of our Lord Jesus today from Matthew's gospel, would you just use it well uh, to, to conform us to his image and to strengthen us in our Christian life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. I have very fond memory of traveling on vacation to Michigan That's where I last lived through my high school years. My dad pastored a church there. And so all these years in West Virginia, for many years through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, we traveled to Michigan all the time for vacation and home to see mom and dad. And many of you know our daughter Tasha, who's now 31 years old. When Tasha was a little girl, Tasha had an endless word tank. And she just was full of words. And one of the things Tasha would do on our long trips to Michigan, besides just talking from the back seat, um, this is when she was quite a little girl, she knew by heart all of the great Disney films that were popular right then, The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. She could do all the voices and she could do all the songs and she did them repeatedly. And when she ran out of that, she would say sometimes, Dad, let's play 20 questions. And I would say, sure, Tosh, let's play 20 questions. And, you know, the Ohio Turnpike never ends. And um, so we're heading for Michigan and we would play 20 questions. Now, the way 20 questions works is um, somebody in the car would pick a topic. So they were in charge. It was their turn. And they would pick a category. It might be the zoo. Or it might be relatives, or it might be our church, people in our church, um, people in her class. And then everybody else in the car, namely mom and dad, would be able to pick um, or ask questions that could be answered by a yes or a no. And we had 20 questions to ask in her category to finally make a guess. And of course, you wanted to exhaust your 20 questions, the person who was in charge. And so it would go something like this with Tasha. Um, You know, okay, the zoo. All right. And one of us would ask, does it have a long neck? Yes. Um, Does it have brown splotches all up its neck and on its body? Yes. Um, Does it eat leaves way high in a tree? Yes. And somebody would say, "Um, I know, I know, I'm going to make a guess. See, if you guessed and you were wrong, you were out. And we would say, with Tasha, we would say, a giraffe. And Tasha would laugh and say, no. And uh, she had something else. I don't know what she was doing. but <laughs> Well, we're not going to play 20 questions this morning. Um, you, you're disappointed. <laughs> but we're going to ask five questions. And we need to ask questions of the text that we're in, in Matthew chapter 11. I'm warning you that this text is a little bit difficult to understand. Now, how many of you have ever read your Bible and you thought to yourself, what does he mean by that? 
And the Bible is a big book with small print, isn't it? And one of the things we're committed to as we preach through the Gospel of Matthew and as we preach through our Bible and and, uh, different passages, we try not to just pick and choose what we like to preach, but we take it as it comes. And so as we turn to Matthew chapter 11 today, we're finishing up this chapter and our text for today is Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 to 30. Now this passage will end with very familiar verses to you. Some of the more familiar words that our Lord ever spoke are in this passage. But heading into that, our Lord is going to pray out loud in front of his disciples. And that's the part we want to look at. And we were going to ask some questions. Let's read the text. And before we do, though, let's remind ourselves that um, we've just completed last week this, this powerful, confrontive challenging passage where our Lord condemned some of the cities that were in his own neighborhood, cities that were not wicked, cities that seemed to be good people over there. You know, um, we say that about different areas of the country over there, up there in Back Creek Valley, them are good people back there. You know what? Them are sinners just like everybody else. But you know what I mean? It's like good people. And in Capernaum and, uh, Uh, Chorazin, they were good people. But remember the point of the passage was Jesus went there and their faith, their unbelief was so thick you could cut it with a knife and he couldn't do his works there and he wouldn't do his works there. And ultimately he condemns them as worse to a worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah because of why? Because of their callousness and their unbelief. In fact, they were just bored with Jesus and unimpressed with Jesus. It's a scary thing to just be callous about Jesus and ignore him, and he condemns them. He's coming out of that, and that's where we begin at verse 25. Um, and he says, At that time, Jesus declared, Matthew eleven twenty-five, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I'm reading out of the ESV. English Standard Version, some of you uh, using King James, perhaps New King James, it will say babes instead of little children. Verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was your plan. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now the familiar part of the passage Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Will you say that phrase with me? And you will find rest for your souls. I'm wondering if there's some people here this morning who need rest in your soul. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Well, we're going to ask five questions. We're going to make four statements, starting with question number two. The first question is to just put in context, where are we in the timeline and what's happening? And so as we read and we come out of the the woe passage, the 
the condemnation of these unrepentant cities that Jesus has just condemned, Matthew bridges to the next section by just saying then, at that time. So question number one that we're going to ask our te- of our text today, we're, it, we're looking at the text and we're going to ask questions about the text. Question number one, when is at that time? Our text doesn't tell us and this is where one of our Bible study methods, remember, is to cross-check and to look at some of the parallel passages. And in fact, the Matthew 11 passage, this is repeated in Luke's version, in Luke's gospel and chapter 10. So let's just take a second, because some of you like to keep up chronologically with where Jesus is in his ministry and the timeline. And in Luke chapter 10... We see a little bit of what's going on in the ministry of our Lord when he's, when what Matthew calls is at that time. Well, what time is he talking about? Well, this is an interesting time in Luke chapter 10. You'll notice if you let your eyes go up to Luke 10, 13, that there Luke has recorded his version of the condemnation of the, of the careless, callous cities and the woes that Jesus has pronounced. And then he inserts a section, a couple verses, that Matthew did not insert. Matthew skipped over it. And Luke, in his research, inserted here, in verse 17, this information. Luke 10, 17. The 72, and who are they? They are the 12 and, and 60 others that Jesus had sent out on mission. And they had been out on short-term preaching trips. And it is possible that the condemnation and the woes to the three cities that he lists, Chorazin and, Bethet- and, and, and uh, these cities, um, Capernaum, Beth- Bethsaida, that Jesus had actually been alone in solo ministry while he was preaching there and that the doors were shut on him. He walks away and he just condemns them for their carelessness. The Son of Man was in your presence doing miracles and you don't care. And the 72 or the 72 were out ministering and they have come back and notice that they're very excited. Part of their excitement is it was their very first, for many of them, it was their very first missions trip. It was their ministry trip where God used them in a great way. Some of you can remember maybe when the Lord used you in a specific and, and great way and it was so exciting and that's what's happening here. Look what it says. The 72 returned, Luke ten seventeen. With joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Saying, like, man, we had power. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And Jesus says, that's really good stuff. And I want you to minister effectively. But he reminds them of something. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know, the greatest thing you can say about anybody is their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the greatest thing that you could ever know about yourself, that your name is written in the records of heaven. Your faith is in Jesus Christ and you're secure in him. But it was exciting to these guys as they went out and ministered. And then you see that Matthew, or Luke then says, and let's read it because he adds just a couple of details. Luke ten twenty one. In that same hour. 
Okay, so that phrase in Luke 10, 21 corresponds with Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, at that time or in this hour. So in front of the 72, as they were reporting on their missions trip, our Lord makes this open prayer in front of them and then gives this statement of calling all who are weak and weary to come to him. In that same hour, we're in Luke 10, 21, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see the parallelism of Matthew 11. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son and anyone in whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Luke inserts that little two-letter word is. And that's a little bit helpful. And if you're flipping back and forth, you'll notice that in verse 27 is the, is the parallel to verse 22 in Luke. So Matthew eleven twenty-seven: all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son. And Luke said, no one knows who he is. So it's a truth that is revealed. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's just finish in Luke and then we'll go back to Matthew and stay there. I don't mean to be confusing in any way. All things, verse 22 of Luke 10, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Interesting words. We're back now. Just let our eyes go back to Matthew 11 and our text, beginning with verse 25. So that is what time Matthew's talking about. A time when he was standing in front of his 72 disciples, and they were reporting back on their missions trip, Jesus had made this condemnation of the cities and then he lifts his head and he prays out loud and it just causes us to ask questions. Question number one, when is at that time? Well, it was when he was having a report from his 72 disciples who had just returned. The second question is, about whom is Jesus speaking? Who's he talking about? About whom is Jesus speaking? Look what it says in verse 25. We're in Matthew eleven twenty-five. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. These things, I think, is the message of the gospel, the glory of his kingdom, the reality of who he is. And Jesus is thanking his heavenly Father that he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What is Jesus talking about? Who are these people? Who are the wise and understanding and who are the babes, the little children? Well, I think when we stop and think for just a minute, we realize that the great adverse tension in our Lord's ministry came from the Pharisees, didn't it? And I believe that what Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about these these wise and understanding people, these people who, these are self-appointed experts in everything. It's a little bit sarcastic even possibly for our Lord. I think he's referencing the Pharisees. They think they know everything about everything. They think they know the truth. And they've been putting Jesus down. They've been condemning him. They've been looking for opportunities to attack him. And our Lord says the strangest thing. 
Father, thank you for hiding the truth from these arrogant, wise, ignorant people. They think they know so much. But Father, thank you in your wisdom. You reveal this kind of truth to little children. Who are little children? That makes us think back to Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where our Lord began with the Beatitudes. And remember what one of the very first things he said in Matthew 5, 3 was, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is a little child? What is a babe? That's someone who recognizes that they don't know anything. That's somebody who is dependent. I mean, what is more dependent than just a, an infant child totally dependent on its mother? And even our young children, they can't cross the street by themselves. They'll get in trouble. They will make bad decisions. They don't know the answers to hard questions. And I think that Jesus is using this as a parallel between how the Pharisees and their false religious system of works that they've built up and it's become burdensome. It's a reference also to the burden that they've put on people, the heavy yoke of the law and the heavy yoke of all of their sidebar lists and expectations, things like how many steps you can take on a Sabbath day and not break the law. Those were a burden to people. And they thought they knew so much. They considered themselves to be very knowledgeable. And indeed, they memorized much of the Old Testament. But they were like, Wise in their own eyes. Point number one that this speaks to is the necessity of humility in the formula of salvation. What's Jesus talking about? I think number one, he's, it's speaking to the necessity of humility in the formula of salvation. Only broken people, only dependent people, only people who recognize that they don't have the answers come to Jesus. You know, if you flip back one page, there is a picture of this in one of the stories that we've already, already dealt with. It occurred to me, I was just thinking, this is a perfect example of what Jesus is talking about. In Matthew chapter 9, the very first uh, story there is where Jesus heals the paralytic. We're not going to read it, but we'll look at, notice that this is the story where the guy who was broken in his body and he couldn't walk had his four friends who put him on a cot, brought him to a house that was crowded with people where Jesus was healing. And remember what they did. They went up on the outside steps, went to the roof, tore open the roof and lowered him in. If ever there is a picture of a little child, if ever, spiritually speaking, there is a picture of a babe, it's this guy. He is broken, he is helpless, he is utterly dependent. And notice that the response is, so some people brought, look at verse 2, they brought him to, to the paralytic who was lying on a bed. Jesus saw their faith, said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, verse 3, some of the scribes said, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. There's the contrast. A broken paralytic man and scribes who are talking down saying, we know who they're... Look, this guy's blaspheming. We got the answers. I think that's... We're back in Matthew 11. I think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. People who come to Jesus come in humility. People who are self-appointed experts in whatever, they don't need Jesus. Point number one, this speaks to the necessity of humility in the formula for salvation. The third question that we want to ask about our text is, why does Jesus thank the Father for concealing His revelation to some people? Let me ask that again. Why does Jesus thank His Father for concealing 
The revelation of the truth to some people. That's exactly what he does in the passage. Look at verse 25 again. That you have hidden these things, and yet you have revealed them to others. Well, the short answer in the text is, look at verse 26. Because, Father, it was your will. And he uses, Matthew uses the word, your gracious will. This was the plan of God. This speaks, number two, this speaks to the reality of sovereignty in the formula of salvation. This speaks to the reality of sovereignty in the formula of salvation. Now look what we have here. We have the most interesting thing. Jesus is actually thanking God that there are some people who don't get the gospel. And there's other people that he thanks God that he's revealed it to them. Now go figure. How do you put that together? I mean, have you talked to people like that? People who get the gospel and people who don't get the gospel? And what's happening here? God is at work in some people's hearts and God is not at work in other people's hearts? Now, I believe that God is calling all people everywhere to be saved, but I have seen it before. Uh, in the early service, our dear brother Jim Routson was at the screen back there running the keyboard. I remember a few years ago when Jim walked into my office and he was filled with questions about the gospel. And I remember how beautifully he just humbly bowed his head and admitted his sinfulness, admitted his need of a Savior. And Jim started a brand new life in Christ about five years ago. He got it. Is it because that he's smarter than everybody else? Is it because that he kind of figured it out? And then you talk to other people and you share the gospel with them and you recognize they don't get it. And most of the time when they don't get it, have you ever noticed that they're glad they don't get it? Have you ever noticed that they don't care that they don't get it? That they look at you cross-eyed and they think you don't really know what you're talking about because they are wise and learned people and you're a country bumpkin with teeth missing and barefoot and you believe in Jesus. You're just a babe in the woods. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about. There is this element of the sovereign movement of God as we preach Christ and he opens blind eyes. And why does he do that? Why does Jesus thank the Father for concealing revelation of truth to some people and not others? Well, it speaks to his sovereignty and salvation. And I want to tell you, we don't know exactly why he does it that way. And you need to be careful on this aspect of salvation and election and predestination and how God is at work in people's lives. Because if you think you can explain it, guess what? You're wrong. You can only know what God has shown us in his word. And when it comes to bumping into issues of God's sovereignty, you better be quiet because you're on earth and God is in heaven. But it does remind us of a passage in Ephesians 1, for example. Why don't we turn there? Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to notice before you turn, though, look at verse 26 again. For such was your gracious will. It was according to your will that you did this. He doesn't explain why. He doesn't explain everything that God's doing. He just said, it was your will. Now, it is interesting, as I've referenced, turning now to Ephesians chapter 1 together... It is interesting that when we talk to people, that people who reject Christ and people who don't want to hear the gospel, they almost always don't care. They don't walk away in brokenness. They walk away shrugging their shoulders and say, that guy's crazy. 
And they don't receive the gospel. And evidently, God works hand in hand with hard hearts sometimes. He works hand in hand with hard, with tender hearts. When Jim Routon was in my office and he heard the gospel and his heart was broken over his sinfulness, I believe in the presence of God, Jim had a responsibility to act. And he had a responsibility to bow his head and to humble his heart. But the Holy Spirit works along with that. And God is at work sovereignly. It's not that Jim was smarter than others. It just he worked. And other people whose hearts were hard, God kind of works along with that. You want a hard heart? Go ahead. You know, it's in the same way around the world today. There are entire portions of the globe where nearly the entire population will bow and pray faithfully throughout the day to a false God. And if you showed up there with your Bible and your little Jesus saves t-shirt and you said, Hey, everybody get up. You're praying to a false God. Let me show you about Jesus. Guess what? They'll just cut your throat. They don't care about your Jesus. And you see somehow in God's sovereignty, Part of the reality is, is that when people reject the gospel and are hard in their hearts over the gospel, it even becomes part of their condemnation that God doesn't open their eyes to truth anymore. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach the gospel to all people everywhere at all. I'm just saying that point number two is that Jesus speaks here to the point of the reality of sovereignty in the formula of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just read here quickly and then we'll go back to Matthew 11. Let's begin with verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Did you get that? Look at that last line in verse 5. He did this. He saved us according to the purpose of his will. That kind of reminds you of Matthew eleven twenty six, That this was just your perfect will. To the praise of his glory, verse 6, his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, look at it, here it is again, verse 9, in the middle of verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Isn't that interesting? Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according... Here it is again, a third time. So as Paul is marveling about our great salvation in Christ, notice what he's talking about. Three times he says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. According to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. It makes you think exactly back... Now we're back in 11... Back in 11.26, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, purposed will. And all I can do is step back and say that God is sovereignly involved in the formula of salvation. Our job is to faithfully proclaim Christ. But do you ever notice how you can't make someone believe? You cannot make the scales fall off their eyes and for them to see the light. God does that work through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the activity of Christ in the gospel. 
Question number three, why does Jesus thank the Father for concealing revelation from some people? The short answer, verse 26, according to the purpose of his will, he does this. And this speaks, number two, to the reality of the sovereignty of sovereignty in the formula of salvation. The fourth question, to whom does the Son choose to reveal the Father? To whom does the Son choose to reveal the Father? Because we have more puzzling verses here. Look at verse 27. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Now remember in Luke, he used the word is. So you could read here, And no one knows who the Son is except for the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So the Son, Jesus, gets to choose. Backing up just a touch though, His point is that you wouldn't know who Jesus is if it weren't for the Father. And the the converse is true. You wouldn't know who the Father is if it weren't for Jesus. You know, if God didn't send Jesus, how would you know who Jesus is? And the Father's in control of all things. For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His only begotten Son. And He revealed Him as the Savior of the world. And He let Him live for three years. And He recorded His works. And He revealed to us who He is. And at the same time, didn't Jesus say, You want to see the Father? Look at me. I'm the perfect image of the Father. So you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Oh, the, the Jews at this time, and the Pharisees particularly, and Sadducees hated this. Because why? Because it was a claim of deity. For Jesus to say, you want to know who my father is, just look at me. I and my father are one. Jesus said those words himself. And so we have number three. Jesus is speaking to the point of deity and authority in the formula of salvation. This speaks to the deity and authority of Christ in the formula of salvation. Jesus is talking about The Father delegating to Him the ability to choose. I take it there's some reality of the present day in which it was written. In other words, Jesus went to this city and He didn't go to that city. How come? Because He chose to go to that city. And Jesus talked to this person and He didn't talk to that person. And how come? Because He chose. He chose to do it. And it's interesting, this whole thing of when people rejected the gospel. Remember, Jesus would tell his disciples, you go to this city, you preach the gospel, and if they reject you, what do you do? Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine, shake the dust off your feet, and go to the next city. So somehow Jesus was at work, and he had authority. His deity is pronounced here, and he had authority in the working of the gospel going forward. We have a similar passage to this that this reminds us of in John's gospel in chapter 5. Let's take a quick look there. John's gospel in chapter 5. Take a look. Beginning with verse 19. So Jesus said to them, John's gospel 5, 19. Look at the similar concept that John is teaching here that Jesus is teaching in front of these 72 disciples. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. See the interdependence. 
For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to all to whom he will. There it is. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Isn't that interesting? John is teaching... That the Father has given this authority to Christ. It's a pronouncement of His deity. It's an element of His authority in salvation. And the Son gives life, verse 21, to whom He will. And He gives judgment to the Son. But then in verse 24, He immediately flips it over and He says, I say to you, whoever hears My word, whoever, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. There's no limit And yet there's this sovereign element, there's this authority element in Christ, back to Matthew chapter 11. So we've asked a few questions. Are you awake out there? It's kind of hard teaching, isn't it? Trying to make sense of it? Question number one, when is at that time? We tried to define that in front of the 72. Question number two, about whom is Jesus speaking? These wise and understanding self-appointed intellects or these babes? children, little dependent children. And this speaks to the necessity of humility in the formula of salvation. Question number three was, why does Jesus thank the Father for concealing his revelation of the gospel to some people and not others? And this speaks, number two, to the reality of sovereignty in the formula of salvation. The fourth question we ask is, to whom does the Son choose to reveal the Father? And the short answer is, to whomever he wishes to whom he chooses, and this speaks to the deity and authority of Christ in the formula of salvation. The fifth question is, our final question, look what the text says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These are familiar words, and the fifth question is, could there be a more kind invitation from Christ? Could there be a more kind invitation? So you can get all balled up trying to think about who's the son choosing and how much authority did God give him and who's at work in the plan of salvation. And then all of a sudden, just like in John chapter 5, Jesus stops and he just says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, this speaks... Number four, this speaks to the simplicity of faith in the formula of salvation. If you want to be saved, you can be saved. You want to come to Jesus? Come to Jesus. Jesus invites you to come to Him. Anybody weary out there? Anybody just weighed down? Come to me all who labor. That's the word for weariness. It's the idea of to work to the point of utter exhaustion. 
Picture many of these Jews under the system of the Pharisees and they had been working themselves to death to try to be good enough to get to heaven and they were weary and worn out. We know it's true because we have testimonies. Even the Pharisee himself, Nicodemus, in John's Gospel in chapter 3, at the beginning of John's Gospel, what did Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, you know what? He was trying to keep the law. He didn't know which plants to plant when and how many steps to step and how much weight to pick up this day and how much not to. And can I do work here? And my neighbor has help and I can't help him. It's, I can't keep the law and I got all these systems and, and I'm trying to think and do right and I'm, I don't know and i am I'm got this yoke of the law around my neck and so at night Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he asks questions I think there's a lot of people like that here's an example of a few weary people weary people like Nicodemus number one people who are weary of trying to be good enough People who are burdened down with the load, the yoke of good works. I don't know if I'm good enough. When the rich young ruler, remember he came screeching into Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He said, I've done that since birth. Well, then go and get rid of your stuff and sell it to the poor, proving that he hadn't kept the commandments. And he walked away sad. And he's under the burden of trying to be good enough to get to heaven. I wonder if that's you today. You're trying to keep the law. You're trying to be good enough. You hope your good works outweigh your bad works. No, just come to Jesus and lay your burden down. You see, it's, it's Christ that gives us rest from the burden of religion. Christ gives us His righteousness. Christ, He bore our burden on the cross and He kept the law for us. And we get His righteousness and He gets our sin and He pays the penalty for our sin. And we're released from the burden of trying to do it ourselves. You can't jump high enough to get to God. What about people who are weary of the overwhelming guilt deep inside? You've got sin in your past. And you've got things that keep coming to your mind and you keep thinking, I'm not good enough. I just have these sins from the past. And that makes you weary. You're you're fighting that in your mind. Give it up to Jesus. How about the fear of death? People who are weary of being afraid of dying and you don't want to die. And you're just weary and you're worried and you're concerned and you need to lay your burden down before Jesus. I talked to two people. I started my day yesterday that way. I started my morning with a young man in his 40s, doesn't come to our church in my office. And we met so he could tell me what was going on in his life and we prayed together and we talked. He's got a pretty good perspective. He's just three weeks ago diagnosed with lymphoma, facing death. Ultimately, aren't we all? He said, I I think I've been casting my burden on the Lord, but he said, Pastor Van, about one o'clock every morning, I just wake up and I can't sleep. And it started ever since the diagnosis, so I must be carrying weary. Somehow lay that down before Jesus. I ended my day yesterday at a kitchen table last evening of, of a lady dying of cancer. She's afraid of death. It's weary, it's wearisome. Come to Jesus. Lay it down. And the simplicity is that by faith, He's done for you what you cannot do for yourself. Heaven is secured. You're a child of God. And then rest in the promise of His Word. How about finally the weariness of just the mess you've made of life? You've made bad choices and you're just weary in your choices. You can't get out of it. This is, remember the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7? 
Jesus is at a dinner at a Pharisee's house and comes in and this woman comes in and she begins to weep. She's so broken over her sinfulness and she's washing his feet with her tears. And then she pulls the pin out of her hair and she lets her hair down and she wipes his feet and the Pharisee is standing there. He's the wise, self-appointed authority on everything. If he knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus looks at him knowing his thoughts and says, Hey, I'm a guest in your home and you didn't even do the common courtesy of everybody knows you're supposed to do of washing my feet in a pan of water. And she's washing my feet with her tears. It's the difference between the self-appointed authority and the broken person who's just a child, spiritually speaking. This woman had made a mess of her life and she came to Jesus. She laid that mess down. A few weeks ago, we had Adam's Road Band on our platform. Young, couple, young people just filled with the joy of the Lord and filled with Scripture. And it was a great evening if you missed it. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. They were saved while they were out on mission for, in, in Mormonism. They talked about the, the weight, the yoke, the heavy burden of trying to be good enough, knocking on enough doors, fulfilling their burden, showing everybody that they had it together, and then he came to Christ, and they had these little cards that they gave out. Remember what they said? Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He said, you're weary? Come to me, who are all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Be at ease in the presence of Christ that He's done for you what you cannot do for yourself. I wonder if there's weary people here today who need to turn their eyes to Jesus. You can't be good enough. You can't undo the past. You can't untangle the bad decisions of your life. You can't somehow positive think your way over the fear of death. But come to Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. Come to Jesus. He's our righteousness. Come to Jesus. He alone kept the law for us. We don't have to keep it for ourselves. And in the simplicity of faith, receive the gift of salvation. Jesus is enough. His yoke is easy. It's not a complicated system. It's Christ and Christ alone. Our life is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, we need help discerning the scriptures. And I just pray that... um, Your Holy Spirit will use this time that if there are those who are bearing burdens, unnecessarily so, that they will be able to lay them down and find rest. Father, I pray that we would see Jesus as enough. That we would know what it is to rest in Him. Encourage our hearts as we go. May your Holy Spirit continue to teach us from this text. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.